that that previous version didn't get recorded so thank you <laughs> so much for joining um september 2022 club meeting the oktoberfest meeting edition with um we have all of our friends here and we have some guests and it's always just an open forum to uh kind of be collaborative and talk but um jp from beerly brewing thank you so much for joining bob Kiefer, divine science and author extraordinaire is here jesse buffton from groundbreaker brewing also here in like a dark shadowy room within portland deep throat <laughs> trying to stay away from the heat the cool, yeah um, so yeah, let me share my screen. We have a little bit of an agenda and um, if anyone has any questions or anything like that at any time, just, uh, you know, oh, hold on, escape. Let's try that again. Let me share my screen. Sure. Okay. Can you see my screen? Yep. Yes. Awesome. Cool. Uh, so um, just a few updates, and then I'm going to hand it over to, to Stu to go over a couple of topics that uh, he has some slides on. Um, so the club is now on Instagrams. Uh, there was a old um, Instagram that Joe Morris has started that I don't have access to. So I just created a new account under ZTGF Homebrews. Uh, so if you're into Instagram, follow us like us yada 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 um bob's book uh i asked him if you want to jump on and be part of the round table and then maybe just give him like a couple minutes on the book and all that kind of stuff so bob if you want to give us a couple minutes on your book and and say how's it how it's going when it's being released where it's being released where you can get it uh the floor is yours for a couple minutes awesome yeah thanks Thanks, Kale. Uh, you know, I probably would have came regardless of whether or not I had the opportunity to talk about the book, but it is fun. It, you know, it really um, represents kind of everything leading up to this point, I guess, in the gluten-free brewing world or uh, circa 2021 when the coffee was due. There actually has been some changes since um, since I finished the actual manuscript. Um, that was actually one of the things that made this book so interesting to write was the fact that there was so much innovation just in between 2019 and 2021. Those two years saw over 15 different new gluten-free malts added. Um, it saw research coming from universities, um, like domestic universities, not just ones in Australia, which is pretty much where most of the um, university um, research, you know, really was kind of, that was cited in the book had come from. So I think that's some of the things that's really kind of cool is, you know, you, you we're not, we haven't necessarily meet, reached mainstream yet. I mean, I think that is what this book will hopefully help do better. Um, but, you know, it's just so interesting. Like, I, I you know, I, we had a customer, a couple in that had come in on, like, what, Friday at the tap room. And when the, this, you know, man started dating this woman, um, he found out she was gluten-free. And so he called on to, around to every brewery in Orange County and um, asked them if they had any gluten-free beer on tap. And they all told him to F off. Um, and, you know, it's really interesting that we're in 2022 and we're still having those sorts of responses to it, right? You know, I live in a very, um, you know, there's a very, like, quiet culture of, um, 
you know, almost prejudiced about this, this style of brewing. So I think one of the things that I'm really hoping to do is to evangelize it more and to, you know, really demonstrate something that Joe Morris said, you know, I was actually had a chance, um, you know, after founding out the news about Ed Golden this week, um, I was, I was, I was heavily distraught, um, you know, had a chance to kind of go through the grieving process and um, had a chance to listen to that podcast that I was on with him on uh, basic brewing. And um, Joe had a, had a saying, uh, you know, the, he scored a 38 off with his, I believe it was his IPA at um, NHC, National Home Brewers Competition. And this was in 2018, I believe. And um, Jim had asked the question, you know, why go through all this trouble? Why go through all this, you know, effort just to make a beer, uh, you know, when you could potentially just use a reducing enzyme, if you will. And Joe said it best, I think, when he said, if I can score 38 with millet, buckwheat, and rice, I don't need barley. And that's something that, you know, really, you know, allowed me to really, you know, kind of get my mindset back in order, you know, after kind of going through that once I heard the news about Ed. Because um, Ed was such a huge influence for me, specifically as a brewer. Um, you know, that Scottish wee heavy that I tasted of his back in 2018 um, was, mag was magical. And the fact that he did it without using any exogenous enzymes, it really kind of like floored me. And I was kind of like, okay, there is so much more to this. And that's, you know, it, I really would say that Ed is probably one of the biggest inspirations for me writing this book. Right. And, and there's two recipes in this book that honor Ed. And, um, you know, I'm just so happy to have had the opportunity by Brewers Publications to put our voice out there. You know, this really is um, what I truly believe to be, um, you know, as best as I can put it in my own words, the, um, the voice of the gluten-free brewing community, you know, and, and, and the strength that it has and the resiliency that it has and its ability to face adversity in, in any way, shape or form, you know, because that is what <laughs> the life of a gluten-free person uh, is just ripe with. Um, and to be able to transcend that and to use those elements, right? You know, there's a, a passage in the book that was, that was actually really, I, I would really give that credit to Kale and Stuart um, saying that basically goes, you know, this is a style of brewing that is not just informed by what it lacks, barley, wheat, and rye, but really the, what is used when we make these grain, we make, make these ancient grain beers essentially, you know, so that's, that's something that, um, you know, really moves me is, is, is that element, right? That, you know, um, that, you know, to, to go so, to go so far into the deep end, you know, that's the, the, this is, this is really the true frontier of, of brewing, right? You know, um, you know, every, every person that's on this call is a pioneer in their own way, right? Especially because literally every single successive batch of beer that we brew together as a community, our knowledge base grows, you know, specifically because there is so little research in the space. And I really do hope that this book can lead to some additional grants for research, you know, there's no reason why we should be flying so blind as brewers, right? Kind of just going by trial and error when you have such an epic amount of documentation when it comes to barley. So I hope that we can at least, in, in, there's, there's probably no chance that we'll ever equal that playing field in terms of investment, but to at least get some. Um, and then to be able to, you know, brew with, with knowledge, brew confidently, that is my hope for our community, you know, with this book. Excellent. Thank you, Bob. Thanks. Um, and I'm, I'm sure I already have my copy. So everybody go out and buy a copy. 
Um, and it's available where on Brewers Publications and Amazon and ev everywhere where you would normally find. Correct. Uh, I believe gluten-free homebrewing um, is also selling it. And, and gluten-free homebrewing. Okay. Gluten-free brew supply might be picking it up. I'm not sure. Okay. Cool. Also on sale in the tap room. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, let's see. So cl club numbers wise, it's been a while since we had a meeting. So um, I threw up there that uh, I didn't throw up, but um, uh, we have uh, almost 1700 members. Very, very excellent. So there's uh, still getting people. The club is still growing and growing and growing. So that's fantastic. Um, so now we're going to try something different. I'm going to hand it over to Stu and uh, we're going to try to see, we're going to give this a go. Um, we're going to do a little trivia thing, Oktoberfest trivia thing that, that Stu's queued up and worked on. And then he's going to give us a rundown of his view or, or his, um, his visit that he had to Skagit Valley malting with um, uh, Brian Thiel from Ghostfish was there as well. So I'm going to hand it over to you, Stu. Cool, thank you. Okay, okay, I'm gonna share my screen here, see if this works, hang on. And I, thank I you, like I shared your screen once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, all right, so we've never done this before. Let's try, try trivia here. Uh, okay, can we play so, from our phones? You can do this from your phones. So here's the thing: you can either you can either type in this kahoot.it or uh, or use that that uh, QR code to pull it out. And I'm gonna be, give you a couple minutes to. Uh, and you don't it. need to get the app. You can just do it on the the browser. Yeah, the, the we tested it out time. before. Oh, there we go. We've got sound effects and everything. Yeah, even the sound. <laughs> the schnozberries taste like schnozberries. <laughs> okay, we got four of you. Who else? Very good. Four, five. So gorgeous. Tim, are you in? I'm working on it. Working on it. I'll give you a second. Wow, I didn't realize there was chickens and music. Uh, yeah, I know the whole, the whole thing. This is exactly what October Fest is like. The authentic experience. Very the rural October. Okay. Are we in? Okay. We got eight questions. So get get ready. And you get you get points for not just accuracy but speed. Don't linger. Oh, okay. Okay. Is that where it was first held in 1810 to do what? Oh. Yes. Oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> you guys are freaking smart. What? <laughs> Sorry. Like, right. Who here has read the logger book? <laughs> okay. Here we go. Round two. Nationality, the first brewer to create the Bohemian Pilsner. Pilsner Cal. Oh, gosh. This could go a couple of ways, actually. Yeah. Oh, dang. Yeah. Here's here, Joseph Grohl was his 
was the guy's name, and he was a Bavarian brewer. He went. He was hired by by the town of Pilsen, and then returned in 1847, I think. So German monk style, baby. What's up? German brewer of the original Czech Pilsner. Okay, next round. What are Nouvelle hops? Oh. Oh man, I gotta go with green on that one. Oh, almost. Yes. Okay. All right, Bob is is out front now. JP I'm can fired. still you can still get this, and Jesse's coming up and from uh, from the end. Bob's brain is so big. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> do, do I get kicked out of the club if I finish last? <laughs> uh, uh, my Neanderthal DNA. Watch out. But first and last, cool. No. no. <laughs> Okay, next round. We're halfway there. When did the 1516 purity law come into effect for all of Germany? <laughs> Essentially a trick question. I have no idea. German unification, baby. First, I don't know when that was. <laughs> I'm going to go with 42. Oh. Damn it. Oh, no, it was when Bavaria was... Six. Everybody got wrong. It was, <laughs> you know, I didn't know... The this has been covered in the logger book. Yeah, yeah. This was, this was, it was actually, um, that was the one condition that uh, Bavaria uh, put on them joining the German Union was that yeah. they adopted across all of Germany. Right. Because but was, I just it, didn't know what year it was. Was it, it was 1842 that they added yeast to the list? Because it had only been malt, yeah. hops, and water previously. Yeah, and the magic spoon. That's why. Magic. It was the magic spoon. Magic, Yeah. <laughs> So the Rheinheitsgebot, I didn't know that didn't come into that. That phrase didn't start until 1916. That's why I put that number up there. That That's a relatively new concept or term. Yeah. Okay. All right, Bob. Well done. All right. Anybody seen the Netflix series Oktoberfest, Beer and Blood? No, I had no. Uh, oh, yeah, it's a classic. Yeah, no idea. It's all in German. Uh, you have to use, you have to use stuff. That was okay. Man, I'm. Oh, we got some. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad that that some people like the uh, blood sausage vendor idea, though. That's good. The uh, <laughs> uh, the tent size is very big deal. Very, oh my god, I'm in last place. Is. Yeah, the tent size is what it's about. See, yeah. Ed, I'm doing you a solid here. <laughs> not the size of the tent i don't know what we'd do if you get kicked out though <laughs> you become the president <laughs> all right six so what beer style you just need 241 in the october on everybody <laughs> is not the Oktoberfest beer style anymore, but it is America. True. Right. JP, which which one would you call it? Would you call it Fest beer or Hellas? No. Uh, Fest beer. Fest beer, according to the me and according to print literature, is what uh, the official name is now. Yeah, but Americans think it. Americans think it's uh, it's Merzen. It's a higher alcohol than a true Hellas is. Um, right. I have a stack of books right here. It's a higher alcohol, so I don't think it it's fair to call it a Hellas. 
but right. um but yeah uh it's fest beer according to the germans could they be taking an open book quiz right now <laughs> come on i got the books right here he Look told me cheating cheating okay jp got points for that one Ooh. all right closing in two more the special ingredient pretzels to give them their color and texture. Oh, yep. Why? That was that was it. Brutal. Was the Why is not used in beerly brewing pretzels? No. <laughs> Baking soda. Baking or... soda. Yeah. Yeah. Sodium bicarbonate. Okay. It is a little. T- I I did ask my my wife whether she'd allow me to make live pretzels, and I I got a <laughs> a no go on that one. Okay. Uh, ooh, Jesse's on fire. Like oh, man. having a streak. Okay, last true or false? The chicken dance was written to celebrate Germany's win over England at 1970 FIFA World Cup. And oh, this, might, this might be important for you to be able to answer. familiar with the chicken death, right? Okay. I have a 50% chance. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it was true, though. That would have been so poetic. It would have been great. <laughs> All right. So, podium. Ooh, nice. Oh. Um, hey. Nice. JP, oh my gosh. <laughs> Surprise, the guy with the most German name wins. Oh, oh, but it was close. <laughs> I don't know. Bob Kiefer's a pretty German name. You Fair. can't beat Beerly for German names. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for participating in our uh, first trivia event. Stu, thanks for doing that. That was super cool. That good. was fun. Good, good, that good. That was dope. Okay. Yeah, no, I think that's great. Awesome. All right. Yeah, that, one that was a blast. Cool. Maybe we'll reprise that sometime in the future. Okay. Uh, and now on to more serious topics. I have a little slideshow from a uh, putting a lot of trust in you sharing your screen. Okay, Stuart. I know you never know <laughs> what's on that other window. We're okay. just lulling you into a false sense of security, and here comes the more the punishment part oh. two. No. <laughs> oh. oh wait, I missed so- it. Oh, are you seeing my? Is this uh, we're, we're, is the same thing as before. We're seeing like your um, uh, presenter. No, I think this yeah, is, your, is this your internet browser. <laughs> I think you did display settings. There we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you, you did go. It. Perfect. Awesome. Okay. All right. So uh, while some of you were sleeping off a, a post anniversary party hangover, I was on the road to <laughs> Skagit Valley Malt uh, in uh, in Burlington. And uh, yeah, so so Brian from Ghostfish uh, invited uh, us to come up. Uh, Kale Kale was uh, not with me unfortunately, but uh, but Brian and and Tay from from Ghostfish were there, so we got to look around. And I'm just going to share real quick kind of what I what I saw. So so Skagit Valley Malting is about halfway between Seattle and Vancouver. So here's the the setting for this place. And there are actually two buildings. This is the kind of the, the, the big storage area with, with uh, grain silos. So the, the, the real quick thing, I'm gonna go through this pretty quick. Um, the grain silos there 
are actually not for any of the gluten-free grains that they malt. So they've got, you know, like, I don't know, 10 different silos, but that's all for barley. And uh, I think they do some, they do some other gluten containing grains, maybe some wheat. Um, on the, on the, you know, barley front, it is kind of cool what they're doing with local uh, farmers to, to basically, you know, kind of develop some, some local malting capacity there. Um, but from a gluten-free perspective, all that stuff comes in, in these totes, which I'll show you in a second. And they're, so they're stored separately. None of it goes through these uh, these silos or you know through the, the grain elevators or you know, anything like that. It's, it's totally separate. So this is just for context. And these totes. So this is like the unit of measure for for uh, Skagit Valley. Um, these are like uh, metric tons, so about two thousand pounds of grain in each one of these. So these didn't. These were in the in the malt house. Um, so I'm not sure that we're looking at, at millet here, but I, but I, I did ask just in terms of, of how those come in, how they're, they're kept separate and they are apparently wrapped and, and kept um, quite separate from the other stuff. The, and, and just in terms of sourcing, so the millet comes from Colorado. It's a, um, a farm that only grows, um, I don't know if it's just millet, but it, there's certainly no gluten-free grains that they, they intersperse or are, are um, rotating in. And the same is true for the buckwheat, which comes from Washington, is my understanding. And then they've got these, um, these seven tanks they're uh, they're all in one tank so so they're not doing any floor malting or or uh, you know some malt houses have separate tanks for steeping and, and germination and the kilning this is all in this one all in one system they've got um, and you can you know they're they're pretty massive so there's you know just for scale there's the people standing next to it so they're pretty big they they do 20,000 pounds so it's about 10 of those totes go into these things um, you know, I guess the thing that, that impressed me about, about that operation is just it, there was nothing that I saw that was haphazard. I will give them credit for thinking through every aspect of this. So, you know, from the, the general malting piece that they've, they've been doing for several years now to the, even how would they address, you know, doing gluten-free, that was, that was another new challenge, both from a, you know, cross-contamination perspective, but also from a, uh, you know, just the, you know, size of the grain and, and dealing with, with uh, the unique properties of, of um, gluten-free grains. So I, I, I will give them credit. They're, you know, they're a bunch of engineers. Uh, and that, that was kind of the thing that, that came across to me mostly was, was just how much thinking they, they put into this. They're pretty transparent. They're, you know, I don't think they're, uh, they, they recognize that it's, it's um, you know, going to, it's maybe challenging some people's uh, sort of expectations around, um, you know, a dedicated uh, facility. And I don't, you know, they're, they're not, I, I didn't get the impression that they, you know, are, are uh, trying to dispel any, you know, worries around it. I think, I think that they, they take the, the process pretty seriously. And, in the malt house, so in this in this stage, I, you know what I saw, I was I was pretty impressed with, and just in terms of how they keep the stuff separate. So there really was, you know, one of the things that I noticed was really um, essentially no dust flying through here. The um, you know this these units are again are, are kind of doing all stages. So the kilning, 
all the stuff is kind of getting sucked up through through this <laughs> power vac. Now, you know, I don't have enough uh, molting knowledge to be able to tell you exactly what this thing is doing. But um, again, these 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 uh, these units just kind of slowly turning through, and they've got these uh, the the access doors for pulling grain in and and out, and then some sample ports for that stuff. But yeah, again, I was I was pretty impressed with what I saw here in the in the uh, in a malt molting facility itself. So then back in that big facility that I showed you at the you know next to the silos, they've got basically all their storage, and this is where the bagging happens. So this is their bagging machine. So each of these totes kind of slips in under the under the machine, and then it it kind of gets up into this bin and sucked into the, the bagger basically where they then kind of thread it closed. So, and I, you know, so I, I and I, my observation to them then too was, you know, if there was one place that would probably give me concerns around just um, cross-contamination, this probably would be, would be the place just given the, um, you know, the, you know, it's, it's, it is shared equipment. Um, and so that, you know, there is that potential, they do go through a, a, uh, a cleaning process um, when they when they do a gluten free run of things, so they're not you know they're not interspersing it you know frequently with the other with the other grains, um, and they you know so they have SOPs for this as well, uh, and they do testing. So they you know they're oh, last slide here, they've got essentially three um, points for testing. One is the the raw grain that comes in from the the growers. Uh, after they've malted it, so after it comes out of the of the, the, the single vessel kilns that I sh showed you, and then at that post packaging stage, so they they are doing tests, um, and they are you know they said that they, it did require some refinement to their SOPs. So they have made some changes to that, um, and they are going through certification. So they they are working with GFCO. They haven't they don't have the certification yet, but that's something that they are looking to, to do. So um, yeah, again, I think they were fairly transparent about where they're at in this, the, the process, what they do. And, um, and I think recognizing that it's not going to be everyone's game, that, that not everyone's going to be totally comfortable with it. But um, from what I saw, you know, I, would I use the, would I use malt from here? And I would, I would have to say, yeah, I, I would, I would. I was I was fairly impressed with what I saw. So, um, yeah, that's it. I'm happy to. I don't I don't have a lot more information, but if you guys have questions, I had a question on the 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 roasters, the self-contained roasters. So I I'm assuming that the GS stuff they do is pretty limited, and that they don't have one dedicated just for gluten-free stuff, or is that inaccurate? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So they're, they're actually, they're not, they're not doing any roasting by the way of, of okay. the three malts. Sorry, so that's malt, malt machines, I guess. Yeah, so. Just, yeah. Yeah. So they get through the kilnings stage. So, you know, like, you know, they you can get up to, you know, they, they make a caramel malt. So just to give you an idea of, of how much, how much that is, you know, you can get, you can get some um, color and, and, you know, sort of crystal like qualities, but they do have roasters that they use for their, for their gluten, containing grains but they're just that's separate um yeah and you're right yeah it was one of the questions i had and actually on the website i i, I had a look again yesterday so either this is new information or maybe it's old information that they haven't corrected yet i'm not sure which but they did say on the website that they had a 
one of those vessels was dedicated for gluten-free. Oh, interesting. Oh. But I don't, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I, my impression is that there's just so much going through there. They've got so much uh, turnover that they've got to use all seven machines. They're pretty much going nonstop. It's probably one machine that they do use, but it's also uses other stuff. <laughs> they wouldn't switch it around between right. the seven, just the one. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. The kids, yeah. Yeah. Do, do, are they only doing one, like one vessel at a time for like volume wise? Yeah, I think, I, you know, I think, I think the, the demand is pretty low still. 20,000 pounds is a lot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, like, so in, when you look around the warehouse, I don't have photos of the, the rest of it, but you know, you had totes and stacks of, of other types of, you know, barley uh, malts. And this is, you know, the, the gluten-free section was pretty, pretty small in comparison. Do you know so, how many distinct malts they have? Yeah. Are? I mean, it's just, it's really, they're just doing a, a base um, millet and, okay. and a caramel. And then they've got, uh, which I don't even think is, is listed. I think they're just listing their, their base millet and their base buckwheat malts. Okay. And then the, the caramel's like a C10 is what I've been told. Yeah, I, I thought it was a little higher than that. I was I heard it was like maybe 40. The picture yeah. was 40. It's something like that. Yeah. 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 Price-wise, is it comparable, like say to grouse? In, term, in terms of the what like the, the base malts? Yeah, like ba base malt uh price-wise per pound. Yes. Yeah, it's basically the same on the wholesale level, Jesse. It's essentially the same as grouse, but you don't get a dedicated facility. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Did you get a chance to try any? Like, did you like put it in your mouth and chew it and try it? No, there was really no, nothing. You know, they, again, it wasn't a, a production day that I was there. So it was. Sure. Um, I would have just brought a box cutter and just started slitting that. <laughs> <laughs> you may not have been invited back, but. For sure. Hey, dude, I'm, the, I'm you know, it's about the science, it's about the science. Yeah. They were, they were really friendly. I got to say they were actually very welcoming. They, they, you know, took a fair amount of time uh, to answer questions about it. Uh, and I think they'd be happy to have other people visit. So I, you know, um, I think if you're in the area or, uh, you know, want to make a, a, a visit, I, I would, I would definitely reach out to them if you, if you, at all interested. I think it's it is an interesting experience. I haven't had a chance to see Grouse or Eckert myself, so this is kind of my first time in a in a malt house. And uh, but you know the process overall is is uh, really cool. I'd be interested in seeing their cleaning SOP since that's kind of what I do for a living is sanitation yeah. SOPs. Yeah, because really in that kind of environment, the only thing you can really do is dry cleaning, um, forced you know high pressure air stuff like that. Right. You can right. use alcohol to uh, do a wet clean by hand, but I, I yeah. don't, I mean, I deal with a lot of uh, bread plants and stuff and there's dust everywhere. I don't know how they could get it clean. <laughs> yeah. Like they have vacuum pumps on their augers that pump into the, whatever that side vessel is on the, on the side waste tank. Um, yeah. So I'd be curious. Um, It'd be interesting to see how clean they get. Yeah. That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, I did ask about the cleaning SOP for the, the bagger and of course they don't use any, you know, it's not a wet clean at all. Yeah, you can't. Yeah. You, you couldn't do that. So. So I, I think it's hesitation was thing. that we didn't have a dedicated mill yet in our, in our production because they don't have a dedicated mill. We buy all of our grain pre-milled um, mm -hmm. at Divine Science so that we don't ever have to cross-contaminate with a, you know, mill and auger. Yeah. 
that was the thing where it's like, okay, well, if we have, if we ever get one, you know, maybe it's something that we can consider. Uh, so yeah, I've had a few conversations with them, and um, the last time it's it's been probably two months since I gave them a call because. Actually, interestingly, every time I go up to deliver beer in uh, Seattle, I think about them and I sometimes mm-hmm. give them a call and talk to them. Uh, and last time I had a conversation with them was probably two months ago. Um, and I had just reviewed their website and their website said that they were six months into gathering uh, data. And so I kind of questioned that a little bit and like where they were at, because I wanted to know where they were at. And they actually said their website was about six months out of date at that point, two months ago. And that at two months ago, it had been about a year that they had, uh, samples on. Um, and I, I think that the thing that comes down, I mean, of course, you know, for Bob and Jesse and, and, and I, it, um, it's, it's a different concern. Um, I'm, I'm very interested um, in, in what they're doing and if they can do it. Um, but also every, every choice that I make personally, I don't make for myself. I make for every single customer of yeah. and, and I have to, and, and like you may, any one of you that are brewing beer for yourself and brewing beer for, you know, the people that, you know, might be totally comfortable with whatever choice you want to yeah. make. Yeah. And, and when Jesse and, and Bob and I make that choice, we have to make that choice for every single person. And obviously we come down in different places. Each one of us come down in different places. Um, uh, each, each, each uh, different brewery comes down in a different place. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm not going to say no, never. I'm just going to say uh, there's a pretty high bar there for Beerly. Um, the other thing too, for Beerly is, uh, is we play more with specialties and we could probably get into that in the, in the round table, we play more with specialties at Beerly than we do at, with pale. Yeah. And so a malt house that really only focuses on pale millet, pale buckwheat, and maybe a C45 uh, uh, millet is pretty limited use case for us because um, we don't, I don't actually order that much pale. Right. Mm. Yeah. Fair. Um, thank you, Stu. That that was like a, way more information than I had had before. And, you know, I've gotten some info from JP. Uh, thank you, JP, for passing along all the stuff I had previously learned about what they were doing there. Um, but seeing the facility and just like hearing your perspective on your walkthrough, uh, that's like super appreciated. Thanks for doing that. Uh, yeah, no worries. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was interesting. I mean, it was, it was an invite and I thought, you know, it'd be good to, to share the the info I got again, you know, but JP, you said it really well. I mean, I think every all, you know, certainly at the commercial level, you guys have to each make that that call for your customers and you know what 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 that expectation is. As a homebrewer, it's totally the same. I mean, like even using uh, you know oat malt in in a beer that I make is you know I, I appreciate that that's works for me, but it wouldn't necessarily for well I you know for kale for example. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna share a or, or for you. Yeah. So, so, and, and uh, yeah, and, and uh, in Australia, it's not even, you know, thought of as a, as a uh, gluten-free uh, grain. So anyway, I totally appreciate that perspective. And, uh, but yeah, again, I wanted to share what, what I saw again, I was, I was impressed because there, you know, when you, when you hear about it, when you just read about it, it's, you know, you, there's still a ton of questions. And I, I would say, I imagine there are a lot of other maltsters who are playing around with gluten-free grains and are much more haphazard 
than than these guys are. So you know, I would think there's a pretty big spectrum in terms of how how you deal with stuff. So anyway, yeah, yeah. Just wanted to add on top of that. Uh, thank you, Stu. This was great. Um, a couple of things that come to mind in my and in, in thinking about this is. There's also, from a commercial level, uh, kind of a supply chain thing, if you will, too, right? And um, I, I, everything JP said, it's totally, I agree with 100%. Uh, from a supply chain, I mean, gluten-free grains, right? You, you, you have a really small, I mean, it's like, what? Just one provider of, uh, really, that most people buy from in the world basically right so i think if you look at that and say well what happens if this place like ceases to exist right if you don't have i mean that's your whole business right your whole business just goes poof gone right if you're so i i get why people within the industry had looked and said hey is there another way that we could create another source for these grains right so it might not be perfect right same thing with like you know contract brewing on uh, someone's someone's barley brewing system right maybe not ideal right but if you go through those you know protocols and testing and i think that from i get a much more warm and much warmer fuzzier feeling than the email response that i got back from them a couple of years ago which was basically we don't do anything right um <laughs> i'm uh, i'm i'm summarizing that and that maybe not 100 accurate but it didn't sound like at the time that they had any kind of like uh, certifications or anything like that right so to have what you've seen and i think it was really opaque from like a uh you know a brewer's perspective that we knew like this place existed and they're they're uh, you know mainly uh uh malting barley and it's like oh they're doing millet too that's kind of crazy but uh so thank you so much for kind of shedding some light on what that looks like that's fantastic yeah, no, my, and my i want to thank you too because i i don't want to sound i don't want to uh, have anybody get the impression that i'm overly negative about them um, I am really excited to see what's going on there. And I have not visited because I do not want to, um, I don't want them to have my number more than they already do. Uh, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Uh, so I really appreciate the pictures and the information that you have, because that, uh, that helps, I think all of us, uh, to see better, uh, before we actually go there exactly yeah. what they've got going on. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Sue. Excellent. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, one thing that, like, last thing on this is, it, I, 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 Sue and I were offline, and I think that they're trying to possibly get a source for grains that's a little bit more local to to get, you know, millet shipped from Colorado. Kind of seems counter to the whole, like, I, I don't know. It just seems like it, it it adds a bunch of cost that maybe is unnecessary. I think Stu, you had mentioned that they were trying to like get some source of grains within Eastern Washington. Uh, yeah, I mean, could... I think, yeah, with WSU, right? There, there's yeah. some research being done to look at, you know, the, the option of, of growing millet uh, specifically. And, and buckwheat, quinoa, actually, that, that whole program, I think, is really um, kind of innovative. Yeah, yeah. yeah. awesome. So let's get into it. Let's get into the main topic. Oh man, that was what a day. Um, so I wanted to just have this as kind of an open roundtable, and what the thinking was. We're just kind of go over like uh, you know the 
um, and Stu might poo-poo this slide, so that's why I, I called it Oktoberfest slash German beers. Uh, but I just want to go <laughs> over, you know, here's the typical styles that we see. One thing about over the course of time is it seems like from a commercial level, at least, things have changed dramatically uh, on to availability of some of the things you see up on your screen now. Um, I mean, when I first started drinking commercial gluten-free beer back in 2015, 2016, uh, there was nothing out there at all for any of these styles. It was pale ales and IPAs and maybe a stout, and that's about that's it. That's me in the UK now. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So about seven years behind. Yeah. So, and, but uh, now you see um, all sorts of different iterations of these um, as, you know, tap house type brews and even things that have been canned and bottled. Um, and so from a high level, he these are the vanguard of, of, of these styles, I guess. What's up? JP was was in the vanguard. You were brewing some of these beers in early days. I'm I'm guessing this is this is my basically dream lineup right here. This is what I do about <laughs> at night. It's this JP this list from, this list from top to bottom. I've had I've had uh, two thirds of these on tap in the last three months at my tasting room. So let's just like maybe we can throw it out here uh, for everyone to just kind of say, hey, from this list, what is your favorite? What have you brewed before? Just maybe give a little high. I'll go first. Right. So for me recently, I've been really into um, uh, uh, Kolsch. And that was because of Ben Fowler. He posted up this awesome post of this super clear beer and said it was amazing. And so I just had to had to brew that. So I brewed a Kolsch 10 gallon batch split it into two um, different uh, fermenters with different yeast strains. Um, so that one was probably like one of my top favorites, uh, but anyone else like just get, give us like your take on these different styles. I think the second beer I ever brewed was the uh, Pilsner. I think it might be in Stuart's recipe potentially, or it was someone nice. from, from one of the online, um, forums but yeah that that one went went well nice that turned out that turned out well you like that yeah yeah compared to the first one the first one was a um extract sorghum and uh it as a, a kit supplier in the uk and it was just with uh hop extract rather than any actual hop so yeah it wasn't the nicest of beers but for, for the first try it wasn't bad excellent the Hefeweizen is actually the only one on this list that I have never done successfully. Um, I have brewed so many Hefeweizens and Bob, I think I've had a couple of yours. Uh, and the only one that I've ever enjoyed was Ed Golden's Hefeweizen. That beer is uh, so good. Because it tastes, it good. It tastes exactly like uh, Koenig Ludwig Hefeweizen uh, as I remember it. And it was batch three that I brewed of his. I have the recipe. I also have his recipe for batch four. It was a super simple grain build. It was like uh, with his, because the numbers were all over the place because he didn't use any uh, outside enzymes, exogenous mm -hmm. enzymes. Um, it was like 12 pounds of pale millet, one pound of James Brown uh, rice and two pounds of uh, red lentils, red split mm -hmm. lentils. And that was it. And then like 20 IBUs of whatever noble. And, uh, 
And that beer tasted exactly like Königsweiss. And I got close once, but it was a Crystal Weizen. And I've never, I've, I've tried, I have probably a dozen, dozen batches of, of that and of my own. And I just, that's the one beer that I continually never sell because it's just not right yet. Okay. Yeah. I, uh, I need I, to check um, my cellar. I haven't had a chance to check my cellar, but I, I might have some Ed golden beers that I've kept. Oh, wow. um, and I'll, I'll let people know if I, if I uh, am, correct on that um, but i think i might have a couple bottles of this hepalensin because i i was so impressed by that beer um just i mean most of his beers were amazing but that beer in particular i thought was was really impressive just mm -hmm. in the techniques and in the finished product that he yeah. uh had with that so I'll, does I'll anybody does anybody remember because i remember what the finishing gravity was on that beer wasn't it 1.015? I have it. Is this an open book test? Because I have it. <laughs> I mean, the one that I tried at HomebrewCon, the finishing gravity on that one was 10.22. Yeah, yeah. I mean, wow. the thing was, was his beers, his beers were perfect and they were like 3% alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> but they tasted, I mean, they tasted perfect. Um, they were just 2% alcohol. Maybe all those enzymes are just drying all those beers out that we're, we're doing. Maybe that's the key. Here we go. Oh, yeah. Uh, Hefelinson, his Hefelinson number three. I have it right here, including his. That's actually his handwriting there. I took a picture of his <laughs> menu. And his final gravity was, that was 1.012. Oh, nice. Yeah, that was 1.012. Well, he had been calling me about a couple of beers. Maybe this was batch one or two, because he called me on the phone about a Heffalinson batch that he did where like, and he, he was like, how are you finishing at 002, 008? Like so consistently when I'm struggling to get past 1018, you know? And I was like, huh, uh, you know, maybe you do a longer steep, you know, in your second rest, you know, like there's a lot of different ideas. Um, I'm so, still so surprised though, because that beer was literally like three flat percent yeah. at the uh, NHC. So that's, that's interesting. Maybe I, I got the two, right? I guess I missed the one. <laughs> well that was an earlier one i think his his nhc was higher because okay. he ended up using a lot of biscuit rice in the heat uh ed preferred uh it was like 30 percent biscuit rice in the batch that he preferred the earlier one that that i kind of threw out the recipe on that was that was the one that i thought tasted more like the hefeweizen and i liked uh -huh. but ed actually preferred a different uh a recipe and mm. so um I think that might've been the one that was two, two or something like that. Well, something that's been like, kind of like digging at my mind ever since the um, XGM study came out from UPenn um, is this element when, when you look at the, 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 the sugar chart um, in his findings, uh, there seems to be a novel lack of malt to tetrios, um, which is really interesting. Um, specifically because one of the things that pretty much almost any taster of gluten-free beer comments on is they're like, oh, this feels thinner or crisper or it's lighter. It's so refreshing. So refreshing, right? And, it, and I believe it is because there could very well be this lack of that specific malt sugar. Yeah. Um, and that, that really comes down to the shape of the starch um, and what the specific enzymes we're throwing at these starches um, creates in, in the mash. Um, Specifically because like, you know, no 
no, not really any sort of, you know, recognizable beta amylase, if you will, right? That's really still specific to barley. I mean, when we look at TEF, that could be something new on the horizon, which is exciting. But that was one of the things that was really interesting is I had this conversation, um, you know, <laughs> Joe and I, Joe Ed and I used to just literally like have group calls for hours on end sometimes. Um, and I, I, I said, I said something back in like, this must have been like early 2019 or maybe late 2018, um, where, and I had just finished reading like an, uh, the NHC, like go for gold issue, uh, from Zymergy. And there was a Doppelbach recipe in there that had finished the finishing gravity was 1045. That was a wow. gold medal winning Doppelbach. And I was like, I could make a whole other beer with the finishings of that beer. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's... <laughs> you know? I'm like, that's egregious. That's like literally type two diabetes, like knocking at your door. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, probably what you've got there is just uh, like higher dex, de higher dextrins that won't ferment out, right? Well, yeah. I mean, you have to have that, especially yeah. if you want to survive the packaging and sending off to NHC to be judged, right? So that was something that was really interesting to me because, um, and, and then I was like combining that with the finishing gravity on a lot of Ed's beers and then still tasting so good and having that full mouthfeel yeah. that you know you know I, I haven't drank barley beer in a long time i still remember it though um and that was something that I was like okay maybe there is something to this and you know in order to do the things that we want to do as gluten-free brewers we may need to think of finishing gravities in a different context because of that lack of specific sugars that we may have in our mashes yeah I think the trick is is making sure it's a balanced beer at the end of the day, right? Regardless, yeah, of yeah I agree with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just be a little bit more heavy-handed with the hops. I, I'm totally cool with that. <laughs> um, I, I, uh, you know, you'd never see these commercially, even in barley breweries, rarely. But I'm, I'm such a huge fan of alt beer. Um, that's like one of my favorite styles of beer. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, Kolsch would be my other one. Um, which happen to be like the two that I would say, and other people may disagree with this, but are like the least stable shelf wise, like <laughs> on, yeah. on a commercial scale, like those beers are both meant to be drunk pretty quickly from the time they're packaged. Um, so I don't know that we'll ever produce those at Groundbreaker, but I love those styles of beer. Um, we are getting ready to do a Schwartz beer, which I'm pretty excited about. I think that's going to be our fall seasonal. Nice. Um, nice. Yeah. Nice, nice. I um, well, Martzen is interesting to me because um, like the barley ver versions of Martzen, uh, I I remember um, very delicious. And but I've personally always kind of struggled with this kind of brownish colored or or copper colored um, gluten free brews. I I I don't know. Maybe I just had bad luck on the grain bills, but I, I feel like some of them just come through as just this taste, just super awful. Um, awful I, I, I don't know like, what like, it like, is. For the style or what are you, what are you referring to? Like just, just, I, I, I feel like I have this, these, you know, I did like a red ale, right. And it just, well, part of it is that it didn't carb up and it was in bottles, but it had this like terrible kind of, it was a bitterness like kind of acrid from like dark, I think it was some there was some kind of dark millet I had put in there uh, and and it, it it just kind of clashed with I just could never get a good like 
you know, brownish, reddish type of beer that I liked to drink, right? Can I give you some tips? Can I give- <laughs> exactly, yeah. How about some unsolicited advice? We've got a lot of it. Yeah, right. That's why we're here, right? It's a round table, right? Um, okay. So uh so did you have merits and attacks from um from Ghostfish? I'll use that as a frame of reference. Uh, you know, funny enough, let's go to the next slide. And there you go. Uh yeah, we we have uh some examples of commercial versions of that, and that's the first one on the list. So yes, I have had that before. Um that to my taste, because I had that, I think I have some right in my fridge right now. Um, that to my taste was one way of going to get a little bit of color. And that was that uh had a touch of um the uh uh red wing amber uh millet from uh from grouse yeah and, yeah uh and that was that was primarily color in that um what i like to do with color so um i want to throw out there since i've kind of since i'm talking right now right um there's some really great books my favorite three uh because i don't have bob's book here yet because it comes tomorrow i see the dark lager book that's a good book Yes, yes. My favorite three are Dark Loggers. Fascinating chapter on possibly the origin of lager yeast um, with conjecture. Fascinating book. You have to buy it full price. It's not used anywhere. Um, Hearst uh, uh, Dornbush is one of my favorite um, authors other than Bob because I haven't read Bob's book yet. Uh, second one is Vienna Lager by Andreas Krenmeier. This is a great book. Uh, it's all about barley. Uh, it's all about the um, the uh, the style, the development. Uh, it was stolen from England. Malting technology was ah. stolen from England to produce the Vienna Lager. It's fantastic. Uh, Bavarian Hellas, and also this is also by Hurst Dornbusch. Uh, he also wrote Alt, the uh, Alt beer book. This is a brewer's publication style. Uh, this is number seventeen in the series. Um, and uh, this is a this is a great one too, and I really like uh, Dornbush as an author. Um, the the idea that I play with when I develop color in the beer and um, Vienna Lager is not on here. Uh, I would add that to um, to October this Oktoberfest. Uh, these aren't all Oktoberfest beers. I mean, fair. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, are we excluding Kilsch? What's that? Are we excluding like a Kilsch style or like, what is our thought? Be? Like where, where your, where's your head at? I, I guess the sour, the, like the Berliner Weiss, if you will, I wouldn't necessarily assume to be Oktoberfest, but I guess, you know, I'm, I'm curious where you- Well, I, I think the previous slide said Oktoberfest slash German beer styles, right? Yes, uh, yes. So wouldn't yeah, that be so Austrian? We're talking, so we're, we're talking all, um, <laughs> all ones here. Um, Sorry, the trivia got yeah. me specific like that. Hold on, I gotta, I gotta mute real quick. I think, I, I think also the uh, the Vienna Lager actually was kind of a progenitor of of Meritzen, is my understanding. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, you know, and and if anyone's ever been to like an Oktoberfest, at least here in in the states, like you know, it's not only fest beer or only Meritzen that they serve there. Like, you know, you can still get vice beer. You can get so that, you know, I think that there's this um, maybe like misconception about what is strictly an Oktoberfest beer because it has become known as like the predominant beer that yeah. is the most popular oh, one that's yeah. served at these events. 
um yeah. you know but... have you been in, in in bavaria right like one of the things that a lot of my friends um i i haven't had a chance to actually go in the september months in germany but i have been during the summer and like you go from town to town and there's like two beers in the town exactly yeah you know what i mean and like same with the tent like you, you know you go from tent to tent and you're like like uh one of my friends was like so like distraught he was just like dude i thought like germany was like beer mecca man and like i only got like three styles the entire time i was there (laughs) (laughs) sorry about that my partner called me and wanted to know what fresh hop keg to put on um the the other approach that i take is the idea that if you read the vienna lager book all of the color um the the entire original vienna lager which i would call an amber amber lager amber colored lager um the entire uh, original style was all produced with 100% vienna uh vienna uh malt and uh the color was developed according to krenmeyer the color was developed uh in the mash cooker because it was a triple step uh uh decoction mash um so they would take a portion out boil it bring it up to a boil and then reinfuse that back into the main mash in order to raise the temperature of the mash in the uh in the mash cooker um there was caramelization happening because it was a it was a direct flame. And so you had this caramelization happening, which was then going back into the mash. And so you're developing this amber color. When we brew, uh, when we brew a Vienna lager with Vienna millet, Vienna millet has no color. It's you know three SRM, maybe four SRM. And so we might get the correct flavor, but we don't get the color because we don't have that caramelization. Um, so one of the things that that led me to was uh, if you guys have used medium and uh, chocolate roast Vienna, Bob, I actually got this idea from you um, originally. And then I asked Twyla to do it for me. Um, so using like a little dash, like 2%, not more than maybe two and a half percent of like a chocolate roast uh, a chocolate roast uh, millet uh, can give you that little bit of punch, that little bit of color. And Bob, that was your idea. So then I asked Twyla to get to take Vienna millet and roast it for me. And she came up with medium roast, chocolate roast, and dark roast. Dark roast I used in my uh, my uh, Schwartz beer that I made. Um, and the chocolate and the medium I use to in a very small percentage in my Vienna lager, just as a way of getting that caramelization flavor in there and getting that color in there in an otherwise hundred percent Vienna millet, uh, grain bill. Yeah. I, I, I think JP hit it on the money there. I think, you know, if you look back in history, most, most of those, you know, ambery red hues were added through decoction mashing um and you know lots of brewers have different opinions nowadays on if you know uh you know a lager you know this style or that is truly uh what people are saying it is you know if it's decoction mashed or not um i would say that if you look at it commercially nowadays um like jp said most most brewers are putting an amount of chocolate or some other type of malt and that goes on the barley side as well as the gluten-free side that's just you know, it's it's less um, necessary to do things like decoction mashes nowadays. And that's not to say that there aren't some uh, brewers out there that still do it the traditional way and make extremely exceptional uh, beers, because um, there are. Um, but, you know, just especially when you're talking 
uh, process like ours that already has a lot of added time to it. You know, it takes more time to brew a gluten-free beer than it does a barley beer already. So, um, you know, for me and for, you know, what we're doing at Groundbreaker, like any, anytime you can, you know, shave a little bit of, of uh, minutes off the brew day, you know, uh, you're, you're going to embrace that. Um, and we do the same thing, you know, our amber lager is uh, brewed in the, you know, I guess for lack of a better term, more traditional Meriton Oktoberfest style. Uh, I don't want to speak for JP's Oktoberfest beer, but I think it's more of a modern like fest beer style. It's lighter in color, um, yeah. which is, you know, generally the distinguisher nowadays, but uh, we, we do the same kind of thing. We just, you know, we use a uh, different malt. We use uh, dark rice malt, uh, but we use about 2% of the grist is dark rice malt. Um, and it's just, you know, to add a little bit of that, of that color to it. And I think the trick with those uh, techniques is that you don't want that acridity, which, you, you know, you're talking about uh, kale, uh, which, is, right. which is difficult right. to do. Um, and, uh, you know, we've tweaked, but when you're talking about that, uh, that flavor that's added to it, you know, you get down to the points, you know, the percentage, the tenths of a percentage can start to make a difference, you yeah. know, which sounds wild, but, you know, like we've, you know, for us, a seven barrel batch of Amber Lager say, uh, you know, you can tell a difference when you have 20 pounds of dark rice malt versus 10 pounds of dark rice malt. Yeah. Like you can taste the difference in, in um, that, that kind of off flavor. And so, you know, we've been brewing that beer since 2020 and, uh, you know, every batch is kind of a bit of an experiment to see where we can land with that dark rice percentage to still get that, you know, that like amber color that we're trying to get, um, but not have that sort of off flavor, that harshness that I think is added. Um, you know, and I think that that's a problem with a lot of darker beers, not just the reds and the ambers, but anytime you're making like a stout or a porter or a black lager, um, you kind of, you need to, you need to be delicate with figuring out how to, get that in there. And, and like JP said, the, you know, the red wing Amber is interesting. Um, I didn't know that that's what Ghostfish was doing with that, but I've often thought about trying that in Amber lager recipe, yeah. um, is sort of like a bit of a replacement for the dark rice malt and some of the other, uh, multiple use for that beer. Um, just, just haven't got around to it yet. Mm -hmm. Griffin's a good way to go to both the, both the red wing Amber and the Griffin malt, uh, from Grouse, those are both based on uh, Twyla's Hydri uh, concept, which is, just as, which is just like basically an extended kilning. So you're not getting the roasting, but you're just getting like a really dry product. And the millet, because the uh, as Twyla has explained it to me, because of the size of the grain itself, it just tends to basically toast up and color up a bit. Uh, and, and that's great. Those, you know, anytime you can get those, you know, deeper, rich properties uh, from, you know, an extended kilning as opposed to a roasting like i'm i'm all for that yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. no it's true it's it's allowed us to kind of move away from the nuttiness flavor description which you're kind of like how many of these are going to taste like nuts dude <laughs> yeah no my, uh, yeah yeah nuttiness is definitely you've got it you've got to embrace the nuttiness you've got to put the nuttiness in the right place and you've got to leave it out when it's not right and i would i would definitely say that Jesse, you're right. Um, James Meritson this year is a little bit lighter, I think, than it was last year. I would always rather 
uh, even though I still I I it's I still call it a Meritzen. I would always rather go just a touch lighter if it keeps it from getting that roasty or acrid flavor, rather than um, it being just the right color but the wrong flavor. Um, so that's you know being being judicious with it and just little tiny additions. Um, there's two other uh, 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 malts that we've that we haven't talked about. Um, and they're both rice. Uh, I make pretty heavy use of, of, of both of them. Um, 15 L biscuit, uh, mm-hmm. is really, really good. You like that one, Bob? Um, yeah, we recently added it to our third contact and to echo just yeah. point, even at 20 barrels, literally 12 and a half pounds per 10 barrel per batch, like literally changed mm-hmm. that beer ridiculously. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So 15 L, I mean, biscuits already one of the things that I put in everything that I make practically is biscuit rice. And so to get that biscuity flavor, plus a little bit of color, it's just, it's fantastic. I don't want to linger on this too long, but what was your thoughts around, um, especially towards the, the darker spectrum of maybe German beers, let's just say that, um, the thought that uh, time heals all, um, all, all, all beers over time, you know, there's, you know, these long lagering times, um, you know, that, what does that do to the flavors? I know from a commercial standpoint, that probably is not, I mean, how much time do you get to sit there and lager a beer? Or do you guys even do that? Or what's your thoughts around, Hey, if I have this beer, maybe it's going to change over the course of, you know, three months i'll go last because i think i might be the heretic here <laughs> do you want to go first bob or i'll go i'll go first no worries yeah um we do two loggers now so um it is definitely a concern um, especially since we are paying rental fees on per day basis with our tanks um so that is something that uh, goes into how we factor a recipe, what ingredients we use, what yeast we use, what temperatures we ferment at. Um, all of those things play a factor when you're looking at residency time. Um, like, I guess, specifically looking at our Milsner, right? Um, that is the beer that we struggle to keep up with because it, it, it does take, you know, like 30, 35 days to do it. You know, we're pushing it at 35 days, right? Um, the first batch we did 30 days and we noticed a, a shorter shelf life. So we had to add that extra couple of days. And in certain batches, when we're trying to still put throughput in that space, we have to transfer it, you know, and that you run a risk anytime you transfer a beer. Um, but adding it to the bright tank can sometimes shave off a day or two. Um, so there's, there's things like that, but you're, you're dealing at scale, right? Like, you know, a 20 barrel tank, you know, is 10, 15 feet in the air, right? That's a lot of distance for the yeast to travel. And that's one of the reasons why you see so many large commercial um, lager breweries using sideways tanks. Yeah. It's just a shorter distance for the beer, for the beer yeast to have to travel. Um, and it is, a, it is a very significant factor, right? Like um, if I were to comment on the first batch of Milsner versus the third batch of Milsner, the first batch of Milsner took on a slight appley note within like four to five months versus batch three, I could probably still drink that today sitting on the shelf and it would be almost just as good as, you know, month three, right? Um, And so there is a lot of factors in that, you know, we see um, and we talk with some of the local breweries in Orange County and, um, 
you know, the use of centrifuge gets thrown around a lot. The use of filtering gets thrown around yeah. a lot. Um, yeah. And it is a really good idea because, you know, um, you know, every commercial brewer that's assembled on this call, one of the largest concerns that they have when they brew a beer is specifically shelf life, specifically because historically our category just, just does not move as fast as a Modelo. It's just how it is, right? Um, and so you do need that beer to sit there for up to six months and still be as good as the day you brewed it, you know? And that's, that's a big freaking deal, right? Because, you know, there's so many beers that I've now tried from doing the show with Dominique that like, you're just like, okay, wait, is, is this the ingredients or is this an, a year old beer or is this a two year old beer? <laughs> yeah. 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 So it's a, it's yeah. a fact. I mean, I have never tried in the last five years. I have not had a fresh Glutenberg beer because it usually arrives on the shelf three months out of code. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that, malt selection is definitely going to play somewhat of a role, but all, all, all things aside, all things being equal, you know, if you will, if, if the beer doesn't start in a good place, time's not going to save it when it comes to lagers. Like that's just not going to happen. You know, like, you know, ales, you can, you can get a little more creative with to, to, you know, fix them in, in post, if you will. Um, it's, it's much, much more difficult to do that with the styles that we're talking about. So I'd say rule number one, you know, when it comes to this stuff is if it doesn't start in a good place, it's not going to finish in a good place. And that's just, that's my experience. People may disagree with that, but that's been my experience, um, on the homebrew scale as well as at the commercial scale. Um, you know, as far as like time-wise, I would say of all uh, the, you know, I don't want to speak for anyone, but I, I'm guessing that um, of all the sort of commercial representatives on, on this meeting, we probably pushed the beer the hardest and the fastest. Um, and, uh, you know, we definitely uh, take some, we, it's a combination of needing to get things out quickly, but also I do think we do a pretty good job employing techniques that, uh, can make beer go faster without giving it what I would say like most people discern is like a difference. Um, warm fermenting our lagers, we do that. Uh, a lot of people think that that's a terrible, you know, thing. You can't do that. It's got to follow this perfect 14 to 21 day curve. And, you know, you got to treat it like a newborn baby or, you know, whatever, but we, <laughs> you know, we don't do that. We, we, we uh, knock out our beer around uh, 58 to 60 degrees and we let it free rise to 65. Um, and it does that over the course of a couple days. Um, and then it kind of finishes in that range. Um, we do a small scale VDK test on it uh, before we crash it. And if it passes the test, we move it on to the next uh, stage. And that's just, uh, that's how we do it. Um, are you guys doing forced diacetyl tests as well? Is that what you just said? Sorry. I, you yeah, yeah. VDK test. Um, okay. Basically what we do, and you, you do this on the homebrew scale. It's very simple, but you, uh, before you crash your beer, and this is very important, especially for lager beer, beers, but people do it for ales too. Um, but just pull off a small sample. Um, you know, you can put it in, uh, you know, a flask if you want, really any kind of vessel. Um, you know, first of all, like, uh, do a do a sensory test as it is you know if you smell butter right off the bat it's not ready it needs more yeah. time you know yeah. um, but if you don't smell anything uh, bring it up to 150 180 degrees and like a double boil 
um, give it 15 to 30 minutes and then give it a, another sniff test. And basically that process will accelerate uh, the reaction that creates diacetyl, um, which is, you know, I think probably the main thing you got to work uh, towards not having in your beer when it comes to off flavors and these styles. Certainly there are other things to worry about, but that's, that's kind of the big one that people worry about. Um, and if it passes that test, you can move it on to the next phase, which for us is crashing beer. Um, and I, I feel like we, you know, we, we do that with Amber Lager. We do that with a new lager beer we're producing called 99 Light. Um, you know, we can turn around uh, uh, what I think is a, is a great lager in three to four weeks, you know, which, which is, you know, I feel pretty proud that we can do that. Um, I, I don't, you know, notice any flaws, maybe some other people do, but I feel like, you know, if it's a good batch from the beginning, it's going to be a good batch at the end, as long as you kind of take it in, in, in steps, take it in phases, you know, you can rush it along if it's ready, but if it's not, don't, you know, and, yeah. and I think that that's, um, that's kind of one of the main, main things. Um, so for us, we use, like I said, warm fermentation. We also do, I don't know if you guys do this, but we do, um, a technique that's harder to do on a, on a homebrew scale. Um, but it, uh, you know, some people call it like a 24 hour troop dump or, um, you know, I've, I've heard it called lots of different names, but essentially like a day into fermentation, you just do like a quick pull down on your tank. Um, you know, as, as the beginning stages of fermentation start, uh, you get a lot of, you know, kind of crud fall to the bottom of the tank, even in that early stage. Um, and those can contribute to, uh, you know, acrid, uh, off flavors, um, that can contribute later on in the beer to, uh, you know, apple off flavors, um, lots of things can kind of be, you know, nipped in the bud, so to speak, by just doing a quick, you know, you, you don't want to dump everything out, obviously, but just like a quick dump. And like I said, that's hard to do on a homebrew scale. You know, we have uh, wonderful ports that we can just open up off the bottom of our tanks uh, to make that happen. Um, but that's kind of another quick and dirty technique that we use to, uh, you know, preempt any kind of off flavors um, and get the beer to move along a little faster. So. I think I, I'm, I'm going to agree with you, Jesse, that I kept going back to the well on some of these bad beers I brewed. And I'm like, it's going to be good this time, right? It's been two <laughs> or three weeks. It's going to be good this time. I kept going back and it kept tasting really horrible. <laughs> so sometimes it's just not going to work. Sometimes. And you had controlled the water profile on these beers, or maybe not so much so. One of the 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 this one beer I'm specifically talking about is one of the few, first few batches I ever did, right? So there wasn't a lot of control of anything going on at the time. Look, and the other thing is like these these beers, you know, they they feel so simple when you drink them, which is part of why they're amazing. But they're really really hard to make, you know. Like they're 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 high difficulty beers to make you know and that's not just uh in the gluten-free world that's in general you know like these these beers you know like yeah. they're very delicate they're they're so naked in in the flavors and the aromas and the feel of the beer that flaws shine through on them you know like it's it's incredible how much an ale can cover up you know be, with the not just, you know, I think most people go to the well on hops, like hops can fix anything, but 
You know, I think another thing that covers up a lot of flaws in ales is like the esters that are produced by the ale yeast yeah. um, go a long way to to sort of like, you know, talking to your brain and making you think it's one thing or another. And there's a pretty, uh, you know, uh, uh, aggressive discussion going on in uh, IPA world right now on how much do uh, our of what you're drinking, like hop flavor versus like esters of yeast. Yeah. Um, and people have a lot of disagreements on, on that. Um, but when we're talking these, you know, these, these styles of beer, these, these lagers, these Oktoberfests, you know, Kolsch, all these things, like they're, there's, they're really delicate and you know, it's, yeah. you, you can really notice those small differences. So. All right. You ready for me here? Oh, oh I'm ready. My two thoughts. Um, Okay, so uh, absolutely the bottom thing on here uh, on this list that we're looking at right now uh, is the water. What's 90% of your beer but water? Uh, <laughs> if you don't have the right water, it's not going to be the right beer. Um, I am extremely, extremely lucky in McMinnville that we have the closest water profile to the water in Pilsen in the Czech Republic of like anywhere in North America. And we do add a little bit of... Um, a little bit of water salts just for yeast health to the water. But for the most part, it is just straight out, uh, you know, filter for, uh, for uh, uh, fluoride and, and, you know, we're good to go. Um, and it's, it's the water that makes the beer. Um, okay. So uh, the whole thing about what I do wrong. Um, what, what are the elements of a lager? You've got, you've got the yeast, right? Uh, you've got fermentation temperature, maybe you've got an extended holding time, right? Um, what can we do with gluten-free? Oh, and then you've got barley, right? Barley makes, barley makes a German lager, right? I mean, the Germans say that you have to have barley in a beer or else it can't be called beer in Germany. So we're already doing that wrong. And Canada. <laughs> What I've found, what I've found with the loggers that I do, I used to, I used to hold all my loggers a minimum of two weeks. And, and I did that because my mentor, uh, Rick Allen at Heater Allen uh, Brewing in McMinnville holds all of his beers, a minimum of seven weeks for lagering. And so I was like, okay, I've, I've got it. I don't have very big tanks. I'm not brewing very much. I need to, you know, I need to do some kind of lager, but uh, I'm, I settled on two weeks. And what I found honestly is it doesn't change the beer. It never, uh, lagering a beer never makes it taste like it's, it's made with barley. And so I don't do it. What I do do is depending on the beer, uh, temperature control and I use the right yeast. So, uh, the yeast that we use, uh, for the most part at Beerly is, uh, the 3470, which, um, you know, is the Weinstefan yeast. Uh, the one that's written about in dark loggers, that's that one. That is the biggest granddaddy of all uh, lager yeasts and is awesome and is a tank and can be warm fermented with no issues and can be cold fermented. So uh, 3470, that's what loggers start out for me. Don't uh, use anything else. Yeah, I mean, the, the Swiss one's pretty good. I've used, what is that? Um, 189. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty good. I like that one actually a lot. Um, so next, next thing, uh, do I want fruity flavors in my beer, uh, or do I not, if I don't, uh, it's 55, I'm fermenting at 55. That's where the yeast likes it without producing those fruity esters. 
Um, if I don't care or if they're going to burn off anyway, 68 all the way, baby, because it ferments out in like six days and then crash it and can it and or carb it and can it and we're good to go. Um, so basically the, the biggest her, her, uh, heretical thing that, that I do is like, I don't believe that, um, that holding it for any specific period of time is going to make it taste anything, any more like it's made with barley. And so I don't do it. I like okay. It. I mean, that's what it, I'm, that's what I was doing at home. I, 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 like when I was smaller scale, at least like five gallon, like five to 15 gallon level. Totally. I mean, I also like uh, for all of our small batch beers at Divine Science, like um, I focus on pitching temperature, mm -hmm. um, which is probably one of the most important things for me, at least in what I've seen in the downstream, um, because like it's SoCal, like we're not going to spend that kind of money at like the 15 gallon level to keep the place down in the low 60s, even, you know what I mean? Like the, the thermostat is set at 77. Yep. You know what I mean? And Weinheim Steffener does just fine if I pitch it at 55 yep. and let it just do whatever it wants to do in the, in the time frame that I let it ferment. I, uh, I will say too, uh, when you're talking about pitching temperatures, um, I, I forgot to mention this earlier, but um, you know, there's a lot of research out there on uh, you know, yeast shock and what that contributes to beers. I think mm -hmm. for the longest time, like it, it's always been, uh, you know, thought that any kind of, any kind of shock to your yeast is going to produce a bad beer. And I think what the research is starting to show now is that there's different, um, you know, there's, there's some ways of shocking your yeast that actually contribute positive attributes to your beer. One of the emerging, uh, sort of like, uh, you know, areas of research I've seen in, in yeast research specifically is, uh, pitching at a higher temperature. Uh, you know, waking the agree, uh, yeast up a little bit aggressively, especially in uh, with lager yeast, yeah. uh, can contribute body to the beer. Um, you know, I think for a long time, like body in the beer has always been thought of like finishing gravity and like that's it. Um, and, you know, this, I think a lot of this research is being done now because of the emergence of light, the light beer category, you know, the reemergence, I should say, of the light beer category. But when you're talking about these light beers, um, people are looking for, ways to make them, you know, you want your, uh, you know, low cal IPA to, to feel like the high cal IPA in as many ways as you possibly can. And so body is one of the things that's really hard to recreate in like a, you know, session IPA or whatever you want to call it. Um, and so there's a lot of research being done on how to contribute body to beers that isn't just having a high finishing gravity, which is obviously antithetical to making a low calorie, low carb product or whatever. Mm. Um, and one of the things when we were, uh, researching, um, making our 99 light beer, uh, was, you know, how do we add some body to this beer? I mean, it's a, it's a light beer, but you don't want it to feel like water, you know, like you want it somewhere in between, uh, you know, what, what people are used to with like lager beers and then water, <laughs> you know? Um, so, you know, one of the techniques we use, you know, hopping, uh, you know, dry hopping or other types of adding lots of hops can also contribute the body to beer. But one of the things we came across was some research on, you know, knocking out a little bit warmer than, you know, people would assume, um, and, you know, and, I'm, and that's not to say you, you treat the yeast poorly, you know, the entire <laughs> time through fermentation, you know, like 
you, you don't want to treat them bad all the time, but just, you know, just give them a little, little wake up call, you know? And, and I think that's one of the reasons why we knock out a little bit higher than we see like traditional loggers happening at is because uh, we find that it, it creates a little, little body to the beer. Yeah, we knock out at 65 for all the loggers. Uh, and then we we crank it down to 60, uh, pitch the yeast, give it 24 hours at 60, just so that it wakes that yeast up. Um, we're doing fresh pitch on everything, uh, especially with the lager yeast. I prefer the fresh, fresh pitch every time with the 3470. And then after that 24 hours, as long as soon as it's like really showing good activity, crank it down to 55 and let it sit there. Uh, throughout its fermentation. Of course, when we're, you know, three to four points away, then we go uh, just free rise up to as far as 68, which it usually tops out at 65 for a de-rest, uh, three days at de-rest, and then just do, you know, testing to make sure we don't have any buttery uh, precursors for diacetyl, and then it's crash and uh, carbon can. Mm. Yeah. You know, I, I have a question for you guys, because this is something I've been um, thinking about a lot uh, you know, and this kind of goes to, you know, judging beer competitions, you know, recreations of styles and all that kind of stuff. But something I've noticed um, the last few years, you know, we at Grand Breaker, we have been making lagers a long time. You know, we did our first lager in 2020. We're not uh, gluten-free lager pioneers like JP is, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but something I've noticed when I look at, when I, when I hear, um, you know, like the judging notes or read the judging notes, and even when I read about a lot of lager styles in general, I, I think that there's some confusion um, about like that fruity aspect that you were talking about, JP. Yeah. And, I, and I've noticed that when we get judging notes back and even in talking to people who are certified judges, um, they always perceive fruity as an ester uh, you know, like source contributor. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, when you read literature about malts, especially malts like Vienna, one of the main notes on them is, is like fruity, you know, yeah. like there's a, there's a fruity contribution, um, in the malt aspect. And I, I'm really of the opinion that there's a, a confusion in the literature and the judging and the teaching of of these uh, styles of beer having to do with that free aspect, you know? And I think when you come from ales, like there's definitely some fruitiness that is contributed from the yeast esters, you know, like that's, people understand that. But I think that when you talk about lagers, like there's some confusion about where fruitiness is coming from, you know? And that's not to say it can't be produced by yeast esters, but it's pretty hard to get a yeast like 3470 to produce those, you know, in, in my experience, at least. To produce fruity esters? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, like, the only issue that we've had is we've had to either dial malts back or change malts from that nuttiness element. Like, the, the lager, like, the first batch of Milzer that we ever did, I tried it, like, 14 days in, and I'm like, this tastes like ground-up peanuts. <laughs> yeah. Like, whoa, what the <laughs> yeah. heck is going on? Um, and then I kind of, you know, took a chance to kind of diagnose it and compare it to other beers. And it was really the light roast in that beer. I think it's all the malts. I really do. Yeah. Like it's. Yeah. Well, when we pour in the Vienna, when we pour in Vienna millet malt, like it literally smells like ripe fruit in the entire brewery. Exactly. Yeah. 
And yeah. one of the things that's really interesting is when you look at actually how millet is talked about in other um, cultures, you know, I would maybe say namely Africa, they call it millet berries. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so it's like, that's at least what get, got called to mind for, my, for me. And it's like, you know, one of the things that is kind of cool, though, is that, you know, there was that question about DMS in the, in the conversation uh, for the collab hour on Thursday. And it's like, I haven't really seen it or had a problem with it, unless like, maybe I used corn syrup at packaging, because I didn't have like sugar on hand or something and just like reached into the cabinet and was like, oh, okay, cool. This will be my priming sugar today. Um, Cause it's corn sugar. Right. Um, but like, that's literally like the only ever time that I've had that sort of an issue in a beer. And I'm like, I, used, I, I refrain from saying we're, we're immune to it, but I, yeah. you know, that it could very well be one of the things that gluten-free grains are potentially immune to. Um, I would say that aldehyde is one of the highest risks that we have. Yeah. Um, diacetyl somewhat, but like, yeah, if you use a vine definitely like I'm confident that my vine definitely gets up into the seventies. Um, yeah, and I haven't seen any issues, no autolization, no, no, no real issues with that beer. I've been doing a lot of cold IPAs recently, so thank you guys for being yeah. kind of using that because you guys got me like hooked on that style. Yeah, baby. Some yeah. of our most popular beers that we've released this year have been cold IPAs. Cold IPAs rock. They're they're, so they're, fun they're wonderful. I've got so, an, it's just like it's just like put stuff in a pot and and then <laughs> put way too many hops and then like just like stick it out back and let the sun heat it up and you're done matter of opinion jp on too many i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> <laughs> if i only get a two gallon yield that's completely fine with me. <laughs> people don't mind um, paying 14 dollars a pint right <laughs> right right no here's your beer 20 dollars, please um i would say so I have, um, I have a couple customers that, uh, are, I think super tasters for autolization and yeast. And, um, I tend to sometimes get a little bit of autolization, uh, in beers that are made with, uh, with some or a lot of sorghum, but not, and, and also some or a lot of pale buckwheat, interestingly. Um, uh, I have a customer, couple customers that will pick up a little bit of a smokiness where there was none intended. And that can be, uh, that can be evidence of autolization of the yeast. Um, the, uh, uh, the DMS we're not immune to, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna name names. Uh, it's nobody on this call, but I, I have tasted a commercial gluten-free beer that was butter bomb before. Um, so I know can, we're not. Can you text me when this is over? Cause I'm, I'm really fascinated and not, not because I, I want to rag on whoever it is, but cause I've never experienced it. Uh -huh, you know? uh -huh. And and I know Jason is pretty vocal about this, that he thinks that it doesn't really exist in what, what we do here. And, you know, I, I'm also a little hesitant to go that far, but I've never experienced it in gluten-free beer. And I would be fascinated to, to I'm going to, I'm going to text you right now. <laughs> okay. Group text, group text. Oh my gosh. Uh, you uh, uh, or, or, uh, or, or DMS? Uh, DMS. Yeah. Well, cause wait, uh, but, butter, like wait, just like butter or, or are we talking like buttered popcorn? Okay. Uh, so you know what, do you remember what rolling rock tastes like? Oh, how can I forget so many, so many nights of rolling rock as a young, young 18 year old drinking underage. Wait, wait. That's, Never. I mean, that's, that's like a DMF bomb. So, um, that, so there you go, Jesse. Um, okay. <laughs> hey, who are those people? Oh, okay. 
I, so, I, oh, oh, I had a suspicion. Uh, so we're kind of hitting on our, on our on our max time here, but uh, and we didn't really touch on the. We were going to go through a couple of styles in a little greater detail. But great conversation. Thanks so much. Um, I guess maybe like before we go, like this uh, slide here is just primarily focused on, you know, what grains on gluten free would really lend themselves to this style. What hops? I mean, the hops are going to be the hops regardless of barley or, or gluten free. And so we just threw up some examples of some some common ones, some common yeast that you may use, um, so on and so forth. Maybe guys, just give us a parting shot on like, you now you know whatever you want. Like, like how does this fit into like what do you guys usually do in your your uh, your your brews? What's your favorite, you know, beer that you guys make? What hops do you typically use? So on and so forth. Maybe a parting shot from each of you. Um, Sotzer type hops are traditional for uh, a lot of German. Uh, 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 beers. If you, if you look at, uh, they were, Sotzer were actually, um, prohibited by the King of Bohemia from being exported because of their extreme quality. And so German brewers were actually buying hop, uh, plantations and, uh, and growing Sotz hops. Uh, and that's a, a land race variety, I believe, if I remember correctly, um, growing Sotz hops so that they could, and then brewing their beer in Bohemia so that they could sell it into the German market because the, the hops were so prized. There are a lot of Sotzer type hops. I like using Sotzer type hops and things because you can get things, especially with, with gluten-free beer. Um, I find that the, the less amount of hop, uh, vegetal hop matter that I can put in the beer, the cleaner the beer is going to be. So at least for me, so, um, uh, things like, uh, what's the, what's the New Zealand variety? It's, uh, Pacific Jade or what? No, the, uh, the other one, um, sunrise? Uh, Pacific Sunrise. Uh, sorry, I'll think of it. But, uh, the one that I really want to throw out is, uh, the Michigan hop. Um, I use that's, uh, Paradigm. Paradigm is a Satsar type hop from Great Lake hops. Um, and they, that hop is really nice to higher uh, alpha acid level. So you get more punch for less vegetal matter. Um, and that's that's kind of one of the things I like to play around with. Uh, Mount Hood is another one of my favorites, uh, a little bit higher than like a, a, a Sots, like last season Sotsers were coming in at like 2.5 alpha acid. So if I can get a 5%, I can put less vegetal matter in the beer. And um, I think it makes a better beer. Okay. Nice, nice. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, Sotzers, uh, anything that's like descended from that or anything that's descended from holler towels, I like those a lot too. Um, we use crystal hops in our 99 like. It's a descendant yeah. of holler towel. I think it's crossed like Mount Hood, which like JP, I think maybe you mentioned that, but those are great. I'm going to quickly throw out the percentages for Amber Lager if anyone's interested. Um, you know, make it, make something better. I don't really care. I'm just going to throw it out there, but for that beer, we do 32% pale rice malt, 22% Vienna millet malt, 11% Munich millet malt, 11% pale buckwheat malt, 8% rice malt, 2% dark rice malt. And then because we like to do one mash of single infusion on our system and not two, we just I add like one, for us, this one bucket of sorghum syrup or 14% uh, in, in percentage wise. So that's what we do for that. Awesome. And also 3470. 
No, no exceptions. Don't do anything else. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm 3470 evangelist. All right. What, warm yeah. fermented, of course, right? Warm fermented. It's <laughs> necessario. Gracias. I'm so proud of you, Jesse. <laughs> one of us. One of us. <laughs> what hop variety is that? Damn. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm a big fan of Saws too. I mean, you literally can't go wrong with that hop, but I do really like Herzbrucker a lot. It tastes to me like hop candy. Um, yeah. Mill Frewer is like a de parfum for hops. It's just so floral and lovely that you can do anything with that hop. You can bitter, you can late hop, you can whirlpool, you can dry hop. I, I really love Mill Frewer a lot. Uh, I've made a lot of beers with that. In fact, my um, HomebrewCon seminar beer that was a clone of gra uh, go uh, grapefruit IPA from Ghostfish was actually bittered with Mill Frewer. Um, nice. so yeah, I mean, you can't go wrong with those. Um, one that didn't get an honorable mention here is Tetanang is probably yeah, Tetanger should be on there too. All right. That's one. Of, I love that hop a lot. That's our hop in divine light. Um, and, um, that, th that beer is like really, really simple. Like, you know, I, if anybody wants to brew that, if that it can't get it in California, be my guest. I mean, there are some special elements that you do have to worry about because it is low ABV. It, you know, you do need to keep it cold after you package it. Um, and so that's something that we focused on when putting it out to market. Um, let me see if I can pull this up really quick. Motueka, Motueka. Ah, good call. That's a good really one. Quickly, do is you that guys the New Zealand one? Yeah, that's the New Zealand one. Okay. New Zealand Motueka hops are sots descended. Yeah. So like, um, it's essentially 40% pale millet, 60% biscuit rice. And then, you know, essentially I would say like you could, you could cut those back by like two or 3% because we have a little bit of millet seed and Munich millet malt in there. Um, you know, it's, it's tough to, <laughs> to change this from a 20 barrel batch. <laughs> um, and then we use um, Tetnanger at uh, 30 minutes and 15 minutes in that one with okay. Uh, a little bit of a lower pitch of um, 3470 because it's, you know, it, the starting gravity is like 1034, 1033. Um, so, yeah, um, we, we do a two-step mash, a reverse step. Um, you know, you can watch pretty much any one of my brewing videos on YouTube to know what that schedule is. <laughs> I, I want to say, I want to throw something out there too. Uh, might kind of be last minute, but it, uh, uh, Bob, you said you you hop at 30 and 15. Um Germans, uh, a German brewer believes very strongly that any hops that you put in in the first about 15 minutes after uh, after the boil starts in earnest is just going to basically get surrounded by protein and drop to the to the bottom. So um, so uh, not like starting your boil, whether you do a 90 minute boil, I think that's that's some of the genesis of like a 90 minute boil with a 60 minute hop mm. is get it going, get that, get that protein that's going to drop out, uh, to, to drop out and then get your hops in. Or if you do a 60 minute boil and then don't put any hops in before 45 minutes, I think you can hop lower. And I think you can hop more, uh, more like targeted that and actually get it to maintain more of a, uh, uh, hop aroma in addition to just the bitterness. Um, so I really do love the aroma of our, of our divine light. Um, you know, I love the way that, uh, biscuit and the Munich, uh, millet really play together really well in this, in this beer style, um, which, you know, like literally is probably like two, maybe three SRM. Um, mm -hmm. but, but I think that you still get a lot of what you're looking for in that style. I mean, it's tough, right? Like 
light lagers are now, yes, they're gaining popularity again or becoming more of that like trendy item somehow. <laughs> but at the same point, like there is this subtle nuance in kind of like how to express that and but still be craft about it, yeah. you know? Um, also like setting out to do things like head retention in that low of a finishing gravity of a beer, that is actually rather difficult. And I do agree that you're right. It does come down to like the protein thing when it does come to hopping that light of a beer as well. Right. So, you know, some of this was just really just more from an IBU calculation standpoint. Um, but I do agree that there are certain, um, you know, concessions that, that can be made, like the whole first wort hopping thing, that's pretty much gone away. Right. Like you used to see that in a lot of IPA recipes and pale ale recipes. Um, but now reading the new, I mean, it's called the new IPA. The book is like a couple of years old, actually. So I don't know how new this IPA still is from Scott Janish, but yeah. I really love a lot of what was put forward in that book. I mean, it is a little bit deep in some technical facets, um, but I think that it still really helps you kind of like understand when you are hopping because we focus so much on pre-boil just to make enough sugar in the, in the beer that we can ferment something that we oftentimes are kind of thinking about hops as like kind of a, a secondary thought. And I still think that's just as important as the first steps of getting to the boil. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Our German styles, it's so much less about the hops and, and Beth, my brewer and I uh, laugh a lot that anytime we, anytime it's German beer brew day, um, we like basically almost have to do nothing, uh, during the boil because it's just like one addition at 45 minutes and then we're done. And then, you know, it's like <laughs> each nutrient and things like that. Um, and it's just so much easier because we did all the work in the mash. We did all the work in the pre-boil. That's where the beer is made. Yeah. Tyler hates it. He's so bored. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's when I sit down and I'm like, okay, I got to send my sales emails now because uh, it's the boil. Fair. <laughs> I feel you. Oh, uh, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for everyone that that joined today. Uh, special Great. thanks to um, to JP, to Jesse, to Bob as the Brewers Roundtable. This is really informative. Um, I think Super Gold Star goes to Ed. What yeah. time is it? Ed, Ed is in the yeah. UK. It's coming up 2 a.m. Yeah, our UK content late at night. Yeah, yeah right. it's, uh, it's yeah, zero tolerance after dark. Uh, <laughs> I know, yeah. Well, we, the way we started there, I was like, you know, after hours. <laughs> I, I hope you got yeah. something worthwhile, man. I really do. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I've made three pages of notes. So, okay. um, yeah, no, it's really interesting. Rock on, make some loggers. They're great. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's right. right. Excellent. Um, oh, and the last thing I want to just mention this at the end, and I know that Bob had mentioned uh this that we all um had unfortunately found out that our um club member Ed Golden, who was a great friend of the club, uh very influential uh in the start of the club, um, had passed away. His mother had actually um asked to join the club and then uh, posted that information, which was very sad to me. And I'm sure all of you, um, I, I um, had limited contact with, with Ed, but I know, I think maybe Bob, I, I forget who it was. Someone uh, uh, reached out to me and said, Hey, uh, Ed has an, uh, an opportunity, right. To, to write an art article for more beer. Cause he had, had, um, presented uh, in California to 
uh, a, a barley brewing club and about gluten-free brewing and someone in that club was uh did content for more beer so he actually ended up calling me from australia this is a few years ago and just the nicest person you'll ever meet and everyone of course has mentioned his fantastic beers um the first anniversary party, one uh, memory that I have of Ed was at the end of the party, he had, I think it was like a milk crate, like massive amounts of beers that he was giving out to see everyone, whoever would take them. I, of course, got several. Uh, they were all fantastic, as everyone said. It's a great loss to the club. Um, and so we just wanted to... Um, um, make sure and 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 um just remember eds and i didn't want the sad stuff to be in the start so i put this at the end i don't know if anyone else wants to say a word though i mean i think bob bob said a lot of what i feel is he was very influential in the early days and i know i learned a lot from him and was very inspired by him so yeah no i love the way that he spoke about brewing um you know, you could really feel like there was this methodology, there was this uh, directness, there was this matter of factness. Um, and that's something that uh, I take with me every time I do say like some sort of a presentation or something like this, yeah. right? Is, is that, you know, this isn't like we're making up fairy tales about, you know, a, a mythical brewing parallel universe, like this is real, like we are making beer here, right? And that's something that, um, you know, just always fills me with such pride is to have known Ed, you know, and to have been able to just have any of that genius potentially rub off on me. And my gosh, like this, you know, it, it, it's interesting because, you know, he, he isn't necessarily the first to do what he, what he did, but he's the first that I got to experience, right? Like you hear about the Andrew Lavery's of the world doing these things and being successful with it. And then you see somebody like excelling in it. Um, yeah. and, and that really truly was Ed, um, you know, and that's something that's so crazy because like he's buying most of his malt from the feed store, you know what I mean? Like there was a question from the technical edit when I had been talking about that in like in one of my passages in the book and they're like, are we allowed to legally put this in here? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I mean, if you, if we need to cut it just for sa security's sake, that's totally fine. But this is a real location that gluten-free brewers are buying malt or potential malt, right? That they are making into malt. So. <laughs> I think for me, the thing I want to say is just how inspiring he was. Like um, his uh, decanchin mash is what he called it, um, was not a method that I ever wanted to use. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Never. And I was, tech, though. And I was wed, I was already wed to the idea of exogenous enzymes before we even discovered, uh, you know, before we even all started using Ondia and Ceramics and all of that stuff. I was like, I'm an ex, I'm, I'm an enzyme brewer, um, uh, exogenous enzyme brewer. But to hear him talk about it and to taste his beers told me that it, it was possible, you know, that, that the thing that I was chasing after was just right there to grab. And then that's why, like I say, he just, he inspired me to make, he inspired me to continue to push to make the beer that I wanted to make. Yeah. Yeah. And it's that with that inspiration, I approached Stuart and Kale recently. Um, you know, there'll probably be a time in the coming weeks that I'll be posting this. I, I, I do want to try to get some club support behind some sort of a group brew or some sort of a trial 
um, brew that we as a group take on. Um, and it is like a modification of Ed style that still does have a little bit of exogenous, but is still utilizing what, uh, what we believe to have been discovered within certain grains. So certain enzymes that are intrinsic there. And then doing- I think it'd have to be a wee heavy. I, I think that's the only way to really pay the correct homage to it. Yeah, it's got to be a wee heavy because that guy loved wee heavies. Through <laughs> <laughs> that, man. I love that style. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I definitely want to get some sort of recipe published. I'll put together some sort of what I would think, you know, and probably, a, you know, I'll probably take from the AHA article that Ed um, put his um, wee heavy in, but we'll do a modified style of that where we still do use um, an exogenous enzyme or two but where we are still utilizing um, intrinsic or um, endogenous enzymes. Sounds like a good winter project, good winter brew to have. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the timing's right, the temperature's right to where just about anybody can do this. Um, and um, yeah, I definitely am excited about it because we've been doing some of these mash trials um, at Divine Science and have been seeing some very interesting results um, in our beers. Um, one that comes to mind recently is a Blondale that we aged on sa saffron rock candy. Um, it was actually an attempt to make a blonde stout, um, but it turned into a completely different beer. So I definitely wanted to see if what we could do to, to brew with consensus um, with, you know, to, with, with this trial. Cool. Excellent. Yeah. Well, we went so far over and above. We had so much fun today. We got Zoom. What is that called? Zoom bombed. I mean. Yeah, we got hacked, guys. We got hacked. That's so exciting. I wish I would have recorded that so we could post <laughs> that to YouTube. <laughs> Let me get banned from like, what? Too. What? Uh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> Jack Hoffman strikes again. Yeah. It's always Jack. Um, but thanks to everyone for joining. I, I um, really appreciate it. Uh, we're probably going to have a meeting either next month or the month after. So I'm going to try to keep these going. Um, and I think that's it. I think we're good. Thank you, Kale. Cool. Thank you, Stu. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, everyone. Take care. Bye. Take care.